John Lee Real Estate, find you the best rate. I'll do all Philly like Google Expressway. Talking to people who Hello out everyone, my name is John Lee, your local real estate agent in the Philadelphia, greater Philadelphia area. I am here with a very special guest, Frank Lee. Frank, I'm going to let you do the introduction. If you can tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and what you do and what you got going on. Sure. Um, I am, uh, as was mentioned, frankly, I'm a professor at Drexel University. Um, I've been at Drexel for exactly 20 years since I came to Philadelphia to start working at Drexel in 2003. So 2023 basically hits the 20-year mark. Um, before then, I was at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, uh, which is a uh, an engineering-focused college uh, university in upstate New York, in Troy, New York. Um, I was there for two years. Um, and before that, I was a graduate student. Um, and before that, undergraduate um, at Berkeley, uh, a graduate school at Carnegie Mellon. Um, so I've been in school all my life. I've actually <laughs> never um, held a real job like yourself, John, and other <laughs> of your listeners and so on. So I've been in um, academia all my life. Um, yeah. And um, in case there's a broader sort of, I guess, Korean uh, or Korean American audience, I, I came to the U.S. when I was 10 years old uh, from Korea. I grew up in Southern California um, since when I was 10. So I'm What's what people will consider, uh, what Koreans will consider 1.5 generation, not quite first generation uh, because I came early enough, but not second generation, certainly, because I was not born here. So straddling the line uh, between the first and second generation, 1.5 generation. Yeah. And I think that's such a, a rare demographic now, uh, considering the fact that um, most Korean Americans, and not just Korean Americans, but immigrants uh, in America, uh, they find that it's either you're a second generation or first generation. So to go on that topic as a 1.5 generation, like, tell me about you know, a little bit more about your experiences, obviously you coming to America at uh, such a young age, uh, you obviously adopted a lot of the American culture, yet still trying to figure things out with like your identity as a person um like tell the audience if you can share a little bit more about that and what your experiences were sure um so i guess i came to the u.s um when i was 10 this was 1979 1980 right around that time um probably if you look at um immigration or, or emigration from korea um out uh, there was a huge peak around that period would be my guess. Um, it's a lot of Koreans sort of leaving uh, for their better life or the better life of their children during that time. And certainly I was one of them. Um, during that time, probably much like every other immigrants, not just Koreans, but all immigrants, um, you face certain amount of race, racism in, in, right. the, in the States, uh, going to schools and so on. Um, being called um, chink was fairly common at that time, um, ho hopefully less so now. But um, uh, so you have some of that, uh, but certainly I wasn't steeped in it, thankfully. Um, so 
Um, I was able to form sort of close friendship with uh, about, I would say, four, three people um, who were close friends with me since uh, junior high, all the way through high school, and all four of us, three of my friends, including myself, that went on to Berkeley. So we've sort of held on uh, sort of this long friendship. One was a uh, Korean American who, who was born in the U.S. Um, and the other two were uh, non-Koreans. Um, one thing that I just remember distinctly was um, I came when I was 10. My sister, who was three years older, who came to the U.S. when she was 13, um, I primarily had sort of non-Korean friends, or if they were Korean, they were, we were speaking English. Um, they were sort of fully uh, Americanized and so on. So I acclimated, I think, to American culture fairly rapidly, um, especially language-wise, whereas my sister um, still reads books in Korean um, even at this point in time, um, and she is much more fluent in Korean um, because when she came to the U.S. at 13, most of her friends, I believe, were Korean, um, and she was sort of speaking Korean. So there was that divergence. Um, as well, um, you know, certainly um, the, I mean, thankfully, I think, thankfully, uh, LA, even then, you know, even before then was pretty diverse, right? Um, especially if you're growing up in LA, you have a lot of Asians, a lot of Koreans there and so on. Um, so I probably didn't face as much um, racial animosity uh, myself versus other Korean Americans who might have gone to like the Southern states <laughs> or the Midwestern states where they may be only one, right? Of like 99% white and so on. Um, so I, I feel like I, I was lucky in that sense. Um, and certainly my heart goes out to everyone who've gone through that process um, in trying to not only find who they are as you were growing up, but at the same time, sort of facing that animosity as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's crazy because even as a second generation Korean for me, um, just just based on like what you look at, look like, um, obviously there's going to be some level of racial uh, tension uh, between you and some other parts of, you know, the communities or whatever you're a part of. Yeah. And um, I, I, you know, even for me, I dealt with um, some adversity um, but it's, I would say, at least, you know, being a Korean American now has my personal opinion. And and, and, and this is just me anecdotally saying, um, like, just looking around, I think it's a great time to be a Korean because um, I feel like Korean pop music has gotten so popular. It's been accepted as mainstream music. Um, Korean barbecue is like 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 considered to be a very trendy uh type of food to eat um you know there's a lot of good things that people are starting to become a little bit more uh receptive to and i think our country is going in a great direction in that regard um and you know uh i i do feel that a lot of people in your part of the generation often become neglected because it's kind of like who do you relate yourself to, you know, like you're technically not a second generation and you're obviously not a first. So it's kind of like, you know, the, 
I don't know if you ever felt like, uh, like the middle child, you know, but, um, you know, and it's also very rare. I don't find too many people that are in your uh, position. Um, but, um, one of the things that I want to let our audience know, and typically I ask this question, but, you know, just to kind of let our audience know for, you know, background, uh, Frank and I, we met through the Korean American uh, Association uh, through an event and uh, we held the seminar or yeah, we held our seminar and Frank was on the, on the panel and uh, he spoke so freely. And also I felt like he related a lot to students so I really wanted to dedicate this part of the podcast to, to really a lot of the younger, uh, to the young, to the younger uh, group or audience to listen, and also to um, really be aware of uh, opportunities uh, if they ever if they ever do exist. So uh, to kind of go on to that topic, Frank, Frank, with your level of education, your background in ed education and academia, like what are your general thoughts for someone that is in either in high school or looking to go into college? Like what are some things that they should consider um, as far as like options go? What should they be looking at? Um, if you were a parent, what are some things that you would try to really help uh, help your child if you were in, in that position? Sure. Um, and let me kind of uh, sort of pause that question uh, briefly and I'll come back to it. Because sure. I do want to say one thing to kind of to wrap up what I was saying before. Um, as I mentioned, um, all of us, myself included, um, and you, and even the younger kids these days, um, probably face some aspect of sort of like racial animosity, racism in their life. But I do want to say um, it's not that the U.S. is any better or worse than any other country. I mean, actually, I feel like U.S. is better because we're sort of confronting it explicitly. So you know, if you look at Korea, for example, I mean, that's because I know Korea, but I'm sure this is true with other countries. There's a huge amount of racism, right? Especially in Korea, people against non-Koreans face that in a, in a very harsh way, um, in, a, in a very explicit way. Um, of all the countries that I want to live in, I, I would choose America as the best place, um, just because unlike the undercurrent of racism that's kind of accepted and so on, at least we, in certain part of the U.S. <laughs> of the country, are trying to sort of deal with it much more explicitly um, and are resolving it and working through it. And that's not true in, I think, most of the countries. That said, sort of going back to your question, another reason why I feel like um, U.S. is one of the best countries. And one of the reasons why, why I feel, in some sense, blessed to have straddled both uh, culture to a certain degree. I grew up enough uh, in Korea to have, at a DNA level, some aspects of Koreanness. At the same time, I grew up in the U.S. Um, so I'm familiar with um, you know, Korean education system. Uh, both explicitly, but also at a sort of emotional level. Um, if you look at how Korea's educational systems work, it's heavily tracked. Right? What I mean by that is you have to be in sort of good, you know, um, almost like elementary school uh, and good after-school programs in order to get to good middle school uh, programs, in order to get into good high school, in order to get into good college. And 
Um, unfortunately, your success in life is hugely dependent on what college you might go um, to um, in Korea. And there aren't that many, <laughs> unlike the States and so on. Um, so that's why there's so many people trying to get into you know, the top, uh, what they call Sky, um, Seoul National University, um, Yonsei, you know, Korea University, and so on, um, and other Seoul-based um, prominent universities. Because once you go there, that relies on a huge network of alumni. So there's a very tight system of alumni um, that is able to sort of support you. If you're in that group, great. But if you're outside that group, sometimes it's going to be hard to get jobs. So for example, um, an academic program, might sort of consist of largely people from like one university, right? If you're a uh, faculty, uh, what I mean, if you're if you're trying to get a job and you're from other university, you might have much harder time trying to get into that um, and so on. And I feel like because of that, there's so much emphasis on education on after schools where even starting maybe late elementary school to early junior high in Korea, you'd be going to you know, ones, essentially the after schools up to 11 p.m., 12 p.m. at night, right. you know, coming back to sleep. And, and, so and for our audience, Frank, could you just explain what a hagwon is? And so yeah, forth? so these are basically private, meaning they're paid by the, um, the parents um, on essentially uh, uh, almost like tutoring, uh, not one-to-one -one necessarily, but a sort of extra class you would take on different subjects, whether it's math, um, you know, English and so on, that's all geared towards, in some sense, getting the best test scores on their equivalent, the Korean equivalent of SAT, because that score will heavily depend, depend or heavily, I guess, um, geared towards which school you could get into and so on. Um, so, uh, and those are called hagwons. Um, and, probably the kids in Korea spend more time in hagwons than they do in actual school um, right. and so on. So there's an enormous amount of financial commitment by the parents of uh, paying for these extra curricular classes. Um, and given that, there is also economic disparity, right? Essentially, the more you're able, the more money the parents have, the more money they're able to put into these extracurricular activities for their child who then gets the benefit overall to try to get a better score right. on, I think it's called CSAT, I, I could be wrong, but um, the, the Korean version of um, SAT. Um, whereas coming back to the US, something that I deeply appreciate about US is, I mean, the school that you go to, if you go to like a named or a higher value <laughs> in quotes, School, like essentially everyone has heard of Harvard um, or Caltech or Stanford or Berkeley. I mean, those, if you go to a great school, great. I mean, <laughs> you know, you know um, but the how your life will go is far less dependent on which school you go to. Um, you know, you could be fine going to a regular state universities or Cal States and so on. Um, you don't even have to go to college. I mean, there is lots of data to show that there's a benefit to going to college, but you, you know, there's a path. There's a path for you there uh, on how you want to go. Even if you don't do well in high school, for example, you could go to um, community college 
if you go do well, you have a path toward going to, you know, a good college and, and graduating and so on. So, and there's just so many variety of universities um, in the States. So I feel like there is so much of the safety system, what I would say, um, so, you know, uh, that is, it's not that if you fall off the track, if you just do a little bit poorly on high school, then your life is ruined. <laughs> um, in an extreme case, I mean, it's not like that at all. If you do that, then you just kind of pick yourself up, able to uh, to succeed in a variety of ways, um, and so on in the U.S. So I feel like, in that sense, um, that is the the really the benefit of the U.S. Um, and in particular, I feel like, especially the Korean. Um, first-generation Koreans coming from Korea, they bring with them reasonably so the mindset of getting to good schools, right? Getting to right. Penn, you know, go, go, you have to go to Harvard. You have to go to sort of these top-name schools and so on. Um, but ultimately, as someone that, who grew up and who are, who been in the academic, essentially uh, academia for all my life, um, it really doesn't matter, to, you know, to be completely honest. It, you know, it's great that you go go to Harvard, but if you get essentially like, you know, the, the average of your grades, that's not going to help you all that much. You know, um, What's more important, I would say, is just doing well. Whichever school you go to, you want to maintain a good GPA because that's the first thing that... Um, that recruiters will look at and so on. You know, how well did you do? I mean, if you, um, school name will have some slight benefit, but it's just not that much. Um, right. It's just more important to do well. Um, and uh, it's one of those things where I feel like I would want to advise not just the parents, but also the kids as well, because the kids these days in preparing for college, would be heavily influenced by their parents, right? Of emphasis for you know going to great college and so on. Um, if you get to a great college, great. But the other thing I would also emphasize, and this is something that um, that I mentioned in our panel as well, John, is what's I realize now um, that's much more important to consider is debt. Right? Essentially, debt you're going to accrue and that you're going to have coming out of school. Uh, if you go to Harvard and you're paying all by yourself, and you know, you're, if, the, if your parents are working to the bone, paying for that education, it's not clear to me that it's worth it versus you go to you know, good state school and come out with no debt um, and, and so on. Um, just the fact that you have 100K or even more um, at the end of your undergraduate, um, you're basically putting a ball and chain on your leg for the next 20, 30 years of your life, trying to pay off that debt. Especially if you're starting out to write a college, your salary isn't going to be that great, right? So um, you're going to be toiling away at that debt, um, and which is going to drastically restrict the type of career that you could have because you're going to go more towards money, which is not a bad thing. Uh, but you don't have the freedom to go into like nonprofit, for example, or other type of careers where the financial uh, calculus uh, might not be aligned with the fact that you have so much debt. Um, I was blessed 
having gone to Berkeley at the time in the late 80s, where the tuition for me was, I believe, somewhere around $1,200 when I started. Oh, um, my gosh. <laughs> and when I graduated, it doubled to twenty four hundred dollars. I mean, there's cost of living, right? Which is right. about you know thirty k that I was paying maybe um, for uh, housing and so on. But thankfully, that was an amount that my parents were able to cover. So I graduated with no debt. And although I did not realize at the time how important that was, now. Uh, being a faculty, seeing students right graduate with so much debt, where they're just there's so much stress and burden. Um, I rather my kid, my child goes to a state school um, or some school where they end up with no debt versus going to, uh, like Harvard, Princeton. Unless Harvard, Princeton is giving them sort of full scholarship, I rather. Debt is going to be a big factor, I think, uh, more of a factor than people realize in trying to navigate uh, education for my own kids. So so I have a question, Frank, to really piggyback on that. So let's just say you have a child, right? You're a father, right, of a child, and your son or daughter comes up to you and ideally, right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to paint an extreme picture, right? Uh, based on what you're saying, right? And I guess I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate, right? But if that's the case, then I would say, like, let's have everyone go to community college, because most likely not everyone is going to be going to Harvard or UPenn or any of those Ivy League type of schools. But um, like, I'm sure your child also has a certain lifestyle or um demographic that they want to be part of that fits their their kind of like social needs I guess the best way to put it because a good example that I can give you is I had friends that went to for example NYU right NYU is is, is a great school but it's also a great social school as well so I'm sure they went for those reasons and they were willing to put themselves without knowing obviously without knowing putting themselves into huge amounts of debt. Um, hindsight, if I asked the same NYU students now uh, who graduated already, would they make that decision now? I think I would say nine out of 10 of them would probably say no. But, um, you know, when we're, when we're younger, when your child is making these decisions, obviously, how do you help them as a parent? Um, and how do you also convey to other students how to make those decisions that might seem really tough for them because of because of social reasons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially from a child from a, from the child's child's perspective, I sort of imagine um, if they've been studying hard, right? They, if their parents have been telling them to go to good school and they get into good school. Um, but so for example, like Penn, I believe the first year is like $70,000, right? Yeah. If you're not getting anything, um, if you're not getting any support, um, that's essentially, you know, that's just first year. Um, and I believe that just might be tuition, but I could be wrong. <laughs> um, if you add on, um, uh, you know, living expenses, like the dorm, you have to be in a dorm for the first year and so on, that could easily get up to hundred K. And so on. And certainly Drexel is not cheap either. Um, Drexel is a private university. Um, 
though it has a co-op program where you're working uh, like one and a half years as part of your education, um, it certainly is not uh, inexpensive. Um, it, it's tough because you see from a child's perspective, they've been working hard, studying hard, they get into a good school, um, and certainly they want to go. It's a it's a validation, right, of their achievement. And in a certain sense, I feel like from the parents' perspective, it's a validation from the parents' perspective. Yeah, my child got into um, X, Y, Z, you know, Princeton, Yale, or whatnot. Um, I would only say that I, I I would just want them to consider that in that as they're thinking about it, because I feel like at this point, you're not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, parents are not thinking about it. The child isn't thinking about it and so on, right? Essentially, four years down the line, are you okay carrying a 200K, um, essentially, uh, um, uh, debt that's has probably at that time somewhere around like you know six seven eight percent interest rate right um that's essentially a mortgage um you know 30 year mortgage um which restricts on how what house you could get <laughs> so right. the benefit if i could say it though it's not it's not as clear um as it would be in korea i mean the calculus would be different if you're in korea where the system is so hierarchical right where that networking of being at Seoul National University might be so strong, right? That right. Um, that it might be worthwhile to go there or to go to Yonsei and so on. But here, I feel like you could network. Um, I mean, one benefit of going to a good university is that you're going to have a cohort of people who are smart in, in certain sense. Um, and it's nice to be connected to that area, but in the US, you could build up that work, that network naturally through other means. It doesn't have to be school. Um, ultimately, the school is there for education, right? To learn something, uh, learn um, being a mechanical engineer, be a physicist, and so on. Um, in that sense, I think you're going to get you know just as good as education um, at any number of schools, um, small um, liberal arts schools, state universities, and so on. Um, where you know you don't have to go so much into debt to get that education, um, but what I would say uh, as an as an academic <laughs> is that whereas the place you go to for your undergraduate is not that important, just do well or wherever you are. So, given that, consider that as a big factor, um, you know, and considering where do you go. Um, but grad school is a bit different. So if you're going for a PhD, it really doesn't matter where you go because it's more of an apprentice program. So it's not the name of the school that's important, but it's who you're going to study with that's going to be important. Who you're going, your, who your advisor is going to be, is going to be very important, um, and so on. So, um, so grad school is very different. But for undergraduate, I would have rather have my child um, go to state university um, or even Drexel. Because because I'm a faculty, and this is a typical perk uh, for academics. So, of if you're a faculty at a university X, usually you're able to get your tuition waived um, if your child goes to that school. Right. Um, you know, Drexel is the same way, and Penn was the same way. So, my thing for my kids would be you know go to Drexel unless you get a heavy scholarship to somewhere else. And if you do, that's going to be on them. I just want to make sure that they make a very clear choice 
um, and you're there as a parent to make sure that they have the agency to make that choice, but they also really seriously think about the fact that they're going to be in debt. Right. Um, yeah. Now, Frank, would you advise parents or students if they're looking at schools to really look at like, here is what a 10 year loan is going to look like once you graduate and based on it being $200,000 versus $25,000 going to this school, like, are you giving them that, would you suggest for them to go through that route of like really looking at it through the finances um, and if you are, which probably you are going to say yes, like what other factors or key factors should, should these students keep in mind? Yeah, so um, I would say um, it, as you're applying, you know, you're going to be sending, you know, 30, 40, 50 applications, <laughs> right? You're going to spread out your application and to figure out, you know, who responds. Um, then once you get the acceptances in, that's the time where you are going to particularly attend, pay attention to the, the debt, right? So it's not, um, the loans are debts, right? <laughs> Essentially, right. unless you're getting a grant, they're giving you the money. Um, you want to figure out what that, cost is spread out over you know, four or five years. Um, but each year, you're going to accumulate that debt um, at the total what it is and how long it's going to essentially pay to uh, uh, take to pay that off and so on. You know, that's, um, I just want that to be a critical consideration um, as they're sort of picking school, right? So I've often sort of seen anecdotally, right, by word of mouth, um, uh, especially Korean parents, right? They're just paying to the boat. It's not just the kids, right? The parents are going to take out money and so on to send their child to Princeton versus some great school, right? For example, um, like Case Western, might have, who you, a lot of parents may never heard about, but it's a fantastic school, um, giving you a essentially a, a nearly free ride right? versus where um, you're putting on maybe 50K you know, debt a year. I would, uh, at Princeton, I say, I mean, some, something that people might have heard of, um, uh, Korean parents might have heard of, I would choose Case Western right away. I mean, it's just not even a, a second thought. Um, right. Right. Um, now, if you have the money, right, if you're rolling in money, fine, you know, just send your kid to wherever they want to go. Um, but it's not just the kids. A lot of times it's the parents who go um, debt into themselves, right? Uh, of trying to pay for their child's education and so on. And that's, you know, that's very Korean um, uh, and so on. So uh, it's it's not a factor that's often in the minds of Korean parents, but certainly I know it's a factor in a lot of American households, American you know, parents and so on, right? Basically they'll tell the child, well, you it's your debt. <laughs> you pay for it. Um, so a lot of them go end up going to state school, right? Um, because um, they just can't afford it uh, and so right. on. But I feel like that type of calculus has long been not thought deeply among Korean parents um, just because of the cultural emphasis of getting into good school is just so, so I think layered into the DNA uh, of Korean parents and Koreans in general and so on. Um, so if one thing that I just want them to sort of consider is that other things, um, not, not so much. Um, but I think it's just, if, if anything, just one thing, just, you know, consider 
just take the debt into account as you're figuring out which child that that you know uh, that only the parents but also from the child's parts you know from the child themselves um thinking about where they want to go yeah no i think you hit the nail on the head because um at the panel um i had friends that were doctors that were there uh inky and esther and they talk about like what they had to go through obviously and the amounts of debt that they had to go and even for someone like inky where he had to even change his career um into specialty because he knew that the income that he was making as as a general practice doctor wasn't going to be enough um so just a lot of things that um people learned after the fact as opposed to learning ahead of time and i always like appreciate the insight that you've given uh, based off of just the merit and experience that you have um, to completely switch gears. Um, one of the things that really, really uh, striked my curiosity, and, and I think even on the panel discussion, I was kind of impressed was your recognition by the Guinness Book of World Records, right? Uh, for, was it Skyscraper Tetris? Is that what it is? Yep. Um, just for our audience, uh, tell us a little bit about that, like your project, um, some of the other projects that you got going on, uh, just so we can kind of give our audience a better frame of rec reference of what you do. Sure, sure. Um, so I guess if I could put into just uh, summarize um, what I do um, is sort of my work um, as a faculty um, as an academic at Drexel um, involves uh, essentially my, my area is game design. So I found the, the game design program at Drexel University, um, which is considered, I feel like one of the top 10 uh, game design programs in the nation um, and has been consistently been so um, you know, for the past 13, 14 years. Um, and what I, I teach game design classes and game design, meaning sort of video games that people sort of think about, uh, but not only video games, but board games or games in general, games that we play. Um, so uh, I teach game classes and in my own work, what I do is I think about um, using game and game uh, technologies and apply it broadly. Um, and trying to figure out interesting ways to apply it. Um, so whether they are applying for games for health. Um, so a recent project that I am working uh, closely with is with Yale Medical School, um, their pediatrics division. Um, so I have a collaborator there where we're trying to use game uh, engines to create simulations for um, pediatric patients, uh, their patients, um, to better inform them about their disease and um, the treatments that's involved through VR um, headsets. Um, I've done other sort of games for health type applications where I've had, I worked with Pfizer um, to create Minecraft um, mod um, yeah. to help kids with hemophilia, and so on. Um, a lot of my work also involves using games as a tool for outreach to try to get um, uh, students, young students who are underrepresented in the game and tech industry. These are women um, as, as well as minorities and so on. Um, 
but at the middle school level to try to get them interested in the tech and game area. So hopefully they will then choose that as a career path uh, when they go to college and, and beyond. Um, so I've had a number of uh, grants and work involved in that aspect of it, um, as well as much like uh, the skyscraper Tetris, where it's just applying game and game engagement and game technology um, in more like an installation art um, area where I consider the Tetris project as an installation art, where we did a large century skyscraper installation um, to try to engage people in Philadelphia in an interesting way. Um, so uh, going back to the skyscraper Tetris, um, it was a, uh, if people are familiar with, and people uh, are familiar with uh, Philadelphia, especially 30th station, um, there's a building called the Sears Center that's right next to it. I mean, there's no other tall building next to it. So yeah. um, that's, uh, it's right next to 30th station. And what's unique about that building is that the facade of the building um, has these embedded LED lights. Um, they're about, I would say, 10 feet apart uh, horizontally between floors. So if you take the the big, uh, the biggest, essentially, uh, uh, side of the facade of the Sears Center, you get somewhere around 20 by 23 lights. Um, and typically, they will have very simple light shows, right? Essentially, cha lights changing color from one corner of the building to the other um, in, a, in a time series, in a wave, um, or lights or changing colors, or very simple logos, uh, like the Phillies, Eagles, and so on. Um, um, uh, I mean, for a reference, the uh, the desktop or the background that you have is, that's, that's for us. Yes, our yeah, that's the, that's the Sears Center. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Sears Center. Yeah. Um, so it's not a high resolution, you know, it's not like it's a 4K display. It's just these yeah. LED lights that are apart you know, by 10 feet by uh, you know, between floors. And the building itself is 29 floors, I believe. Um, right. So if you take the largest rectangle, you have somewhere between 20 by 23 lights. And essentially, they become sort of pixels, right, in my head. Um, so this is more closer to like the old handheld games. And it might even be before your time, John, but there were these LED games uh, like from Tiger Electronics and other places long time ago where you play football between three lines of LEDs. Um, or there was, I believe, a uh, basketball, uh, which is, again, it's just like, you know, 10 by 10, like LED lights <laughs> uh, on these sort of handheld uh, pre-Game Boy, basically. Um, so uh, it's, it's, uh, I really like the fact that it's low resolution um, and given that it, it constrains me in thinking about what I wanted to do. So in uh, 2013, I actually, before Tetris, that's represented in the, in the background, uh, before Tetris, I did Pong. So if people are not familiar with Pong, um, it was the first commercial video game um, that was released on Atari by Atari. Mm -hmm. And the Atari 2600 console, uh, also at Pong, where you have essentially like a 2D tennis between two bars <laughs> that with a ball going back and forth, right? right. Um, so I did that in 2013. Um, and then as a follow-up, I did uh, Tetris in 20, uh, 2014, um, mm -hmm. both for Philly Tech Week. 
Um, and we've had, uh, um, yeah, we've had, uh, I think for Tetris, somewhere around about 2,500 people at the Aikens Oval, which is essentially the big oval right below the art museum, if you're right. familiar with that area. And this is the shot from, from Aikens Oval, looking at um, the north face of the Sears Center, what, where we had um, people play Tetris as part of the 30th year anniversary of Tetris. Um, and if you actually look at the type of games like Pong and Tetris, you know, this is not a game that will be maybe uh, easily familiar with the young kids these days, but certainly these are the games that I grew up with. You know, yeah. Pong was the first video game that I played. Uh, and Tetris is a game that I obsessively played when I was in college, um, when I was in Berkeley, um, and so on. So in one sense, it's almost like a love letter to the games that, that I grew up with, um, the early uh, video games that I grew up with. But the, in the other sense, um, it's nice because both Pong and Tetris are what I consider you know, cultural artifacts. They've achieved the level of being a cultural artifact. And what I mean by that is, if people who've never actually played Pong, I don't, I don't know if you ever played Pong uh, yourself have, or not. I have, but like games have gotten so advanced that like Pong to me is like the most boring thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, even if uh, even if people have never played Pong, I feel like they will recognize what it is. Oh yeah. Right? If you sort yeah. of see two things going back and forth with mm -hmm. the ball. And with Tetris shapes, even if you never play Tetris, you'll recognize Tetris, right? Because yep. they become part of our sort of cultural fabric, right? right. Uh, sort of essentially. Um, so what worked for me um, as a installation artist, I guess, in one sense, was not the fact that I'm putting these games on a skyscraper, which you know technically and I guess uh, was interesting and was kind of cool <laughs> in that sense. But what was interesting to me was the fact that by putting these games on that tall sky, the, the Sears Center, um, and especially because um, at that time, although they're tall buildings going up right now uh, around Sears Center, as you can see, right, it's the only building, only tall building that's there because of the train tracks that are on the other sort of buildings there slides versus if you look at, I guess it would be this side, <laughs> um, or university, not university, city, but center city, where there are all these tall buildings. If I had it in one of those buildings, it would be occluded, right? Um, so you can't really see it from far away. Whereas um, the nice thing about the Sierra Center is that you could view that building almost anywhere throughout the city, right? Um, so what I thought was really interesting was the fact that by putting on putting Pong and Tetris on that tall building that's viewable, from anywhere around uh, Philadelphia city is that for those couple of hours that we played Pong and Tetris in 2013 and 2014, not only the people who played the game enjoyed it, not only the people who were watching uh, essentially at the, at the Aikens Oval at Philadelphia Art Museum, uh, watching and enjoying it, but people from far away, right, around yeah. the city could see it and recognize it and be part of that essentially social um, engagement. Um, right. That was what was interesting to me. If I had some random game that I created on there, people know what it is, right? And they'll just um, kind of look at it and then look away. But the fact that they could recognize, easily recognize Pong and easily recognize Tetris was key part of this desire to create and bring together 
at a citywide scale, uh, people being connected and being socially sort of connected together through this game for a couple of hours. And that's awesome. And yeah, I mean, uh, to part with uh, some of the last words here for our podcast, um, as a professor, right, uh, what is your message to the youth or what is your message to the parents of the youth uh, that are looking to go to college? Yeah, uh, what I would say um, is this, and this is something that I have also, uh, this is an advice that I've given to like the high school students who would visit Drexel. Um, so this is the same advice. Um, one, uh, wherever you go, um, if you come to Drexel, fantastic. But if you go somewhere else, uh, that's fantastic as well. Wherever you end up, just... Uh, it's important to maintain a good GPA. And the reason why I say that is a lot of times being in college, you're away from the pressure cooker <laughs> that was your parents, right? Essentially driving you uh, to school. So a lot of times the students, the kids might have easily lost their way, right? Essentially relax um, and so on. Um, but uh, I feel like, I mean, GPA is important, but also only important initially, right? Because once you build up a career, it's just more what you've done uh, as a career that's going to be important. And GPA you know, doesn't become important at all. Um, so you know, certainly maintain good GPA. Um, and I don't mean you do a straight A. Uh, I feel like long as you're around like A minus, <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> Um, you could get some Bs, it could get this. And the other thing is, is that I feel like this is something that I realized much later. Um, getting good grades is not that difficult. Getting a B is not that difficult, especially if you're having problems, you should reach out to your uh, professors. Uh, and they're there to try to help you. Um, and from a professor's perspective, right? Um, I feel like it's much easier to, I guess, for me to go above and beyond for a student who I know is want, who's trying versus a student who doesn't care, <laughs> right? Um, so if someone is reaching out to me and just really wants to do well, um, I, my heart will go out to that person and I'll try to work with that. I mean, that's just me. It might be different for the other faculty, but I feel like that's a sort of general phenomenon. So um, do that. And I think if you, even if it's not a class that you're a strong student, um, you could, I feel it's reasonable to get a B uh, in that class. And that's fine, yeah. right? The other thing I would say is um, you take advantage of the fact that you're in college in this sense. That is, college is the only time, is that transition period, right? Between uh, being a student and then you're getting ready to go out into the to the, the world of jobs and basically paying for yourself and paper um, and being independent and so on. Um, so that's not gonna come just from just taking classes, right? The pattern that you've had so far up to high school is just taking classes, right? You, you're told to take this class, you take this class. College really should be the time, if you can, to try to really figure out what you want to do um, with your life, right? Um, you've been told to go to engineering school, right? That's the typical um, 
uh, the Korean parents' response, you know, go into tech, <laughs> uh, go into computer science. Um, great, if that's for you. But if that's not for you, um, you just heart is not going to be in it. Um, I, I feel like what I wanted to tell people is, is that, you know, uh, to students, and this might not be, any, the parents should close their ears for a second, is that ultimately you're going to be responsible for your life. Your parents are not, right? Um, your parents love you. But you have to understand that this is your life. Whatever you decide, um, it should be something that you feel strong about. Possibly that's computer science. Great. But if it's something else, um, I want them, I want students to kind of think hard about a career path that's right for them because it's, it, it would be sad to be stuck doing something that you're not that passionate about for the 40, 50, 60 years of the rest of your life, right? Yeah. That you're going to be responsible for. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, is there's going to be a lot of pivots in your life, right? Just because you decided to do one thing in college doesn't necessarily mean that's what you'll be doing 10 years from now, because as long you decided, well, this is not it, and then go this way. And that, you know, that happened quite often and so on. So um, college is not the end of your life, right? A lot of people feel like, you know, college whatever you choose is going to be essentially the future. It isn't. Just use that time more to figure out and and grow as a person, grow as an independent person, um, and then try to take responsibility for your decisions. Because up until that point in time, my assumption is that you had very little agency. But after college, um, the assumption is that you're going to take on the full agency of your life and college is that time to try to learn how to do that including what you want to study um and one great thing about being in the u.s is whatever you end up studying i feel like it could apply to whatever career uh, path that you want to go to um and career path that may change you know every five or six years and certainly it has changed for me because i've done nothing now that's related to the phd that i've <laughs> ended up getting um and so on. So I pivoted a number of times in my life um, to end, be, end up where I am. But throughout that pivot, what I can say is I decided to follow more what I was interested in doing, not necessarily what might be quote unquote best for me, right? Uh, from the outside. Um, and that may not always been a smooth path, but I've never regretted the decisions that I made along the way. No, that's awesome, Frank. And thank you so much uh, for sharing. And for our listeners, uh, if they ever wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, sure. I mean, I'm um, so my email is very public. Um, it's very easy as well. Um, probably email is the best way because that's something that I check uh, more constantly than anything else. Um, and it's fairly straightforward. It's just my initials, which is um, F. Uh, J L at drexel.edu. Okay. And I'll put that in the, um, in the description below if anyone wants to obviously reach out to you, but Frank, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. John, it was a, it was great talking to you and great right, you as well. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye-bye. John Lee Real Estate, find you the best rate. I'll do all Philly like Google Expressway. Talking to people who added a 215, even a 267, who always helping like, oh, no time for no student.